thank you very much, um, Father Richard. The last time I really encountered Father Richard was in Edinburgh when he helped me with a dissertation I was writing on Aquinas, on God's foreknowledge, God's knowledge of the future. And you know, who would have thought our next conversation would be here also on Aquinas? <laughs> well, presumably God, if he knows the future. <laughs> so what is the virtue of magnanimity? It's not very clear. What's it about? What's it for? The problem is not just that the term has dropped out of active service of our moral vocabulary today. It's also that the tradition, or rather the traditions, plural, about magnanimity are themselves difficult to interpret. It's a Janus-faced virtue. Sometimes it seems to be presented as a supererogatory virtue about going above and beyond in acts of great virtue. At other times, it seems to be a disposition towards honour, a sort of self-seeking virtue of entitlement and desert. And, of course, it's not easy to reconcile those two dispositions. So there's a fundamental question about what exactly magnanimity is. The main object of this paper, then, is to try and give an account of what magnanimity is as a virtue, one that makes it clear why it's a virtue. Uh, but I also want to try and answer that with a view to a second question. Uh, this series of Aquinas seminars, as Father Richard said, is concerned with human interdependence. Is magnanimity a good virtue to talk about on this topic? Uh, unlike uh, humility or gratitude, it seems to some not so much to present an ideal of well-ordered dependence as of disordered independence. According to Alistair McIntyre in his book, Rational, uh, Dependent Rational Animals, the magnanimous man, or Aristotle's magnanimous man at least, is guilty of an illusion of self-sufficiency that is all too characteristic of the rich and powerful in many times and places. So that's the objection. Yet what Alistair MacIntyre doesn't explain is why Aquinas, who for MacIntyre is so aware of the need to acknowledge human dependency, does not reject but embraces this virtue. So my second aim is to show that magnanimity does have health, helpful light to shed even on the question of human dependence and independence. Uh, as Father Richard noticed, the title has morphed somewhat since it was first uh, advertised. Uh, when I first decided on the title, I hadn't read Cardinal Cajetan's 16th century commentary on question 129 on magnanimity in Aquinas' Summa Theologiae. So I didn't realise then what a big impact the reading of Cajetan would have on my interpretation. Uh, given today what's today been referred to as the cottage industry of Cajetan vilification, he's not popular with everybody, <laughs> I should explain that I'm not trying to return to a sort of so-called commentarial Thomism. And I'm certainly not trying to weigh in on the debate initiated by Henri de Lubac about Cajetan's alleged distortion of the nature-grace distinction and the current revival of that debate. What I am saying is that uh, when we actually read Cajetan, the conversation becomes richer, that it's almost always worth including Cajetan in the conversation. Uh, and that's certainly true, I think, on the virtue of magnanimity. So my approach will be text-based and analytic. I'll begin with the meaning of the word magnanimity and then try and look at uh, the matter of magnanimity. In other words, what is the virtue about? Then the question of what its target is, what's it for? And then what light that sheds on the question of <coughs> dependence. And 
because I had Ignatius Loyola in the original title, I'll try at least a short Ignatian coda at the end on magnanimity. So first of all, the meaning of the word magnanimity. As I said, the word is largely retired from active service in our moral discourse. We have to hand only fragments of a richer, more ancient tradition, according to which magnanimity is the crown or the jewel or the ornament of all the other virtues. So for this reason, contemporary usage is at best a limited guide to the nature of this virtue. We do refer, I think, to people being magnanimous in defeat or magnanimous in victory. And we occasionally praise someone for their magnanimous generosity. I don't think we can avoid a somewhat sarcastic tone in saying so. How magnanimous of you is rarely anything other than a backhanded compliment. So where contemporary usage fails, etymology may be a more helpful guide, the origins of the word, as it puts us in touch with the ancient uh, tradition of virtue before its modern decline. And Aquinas himself recognises the value of an etymological analysis of virtue terms in defining a virtue. So the, it's very significant. The first claim Aquinas makes in question 129 in the Secunda Secundae on magnanimity is highly significant because he analyzes the term into two words, animus and mania. And from this, he constructs what serves really for him as a definition of magnanimity. Quedam extensio animi ad mania, a stretching out, a certain stretching out of the animus to great things. So I think that there are three elements to this definition. I'm dividing it like this. And the middle part, animus ad, gives us the matter of the virtue, what it's about. Mania gives us the object of the virtue, and quedam extensio gives us the mode of the virtue. So the, that, those are the three most important elements in defining any virtue. What's the virtue about? What's its object? What's its target? And what's its mode or its manner of achieving the target in respect to that matter? Uh, so our main task for the rest of the at least parts two and three is to unpack this definition. So the matter of magnanimity, what is magnanimity about? Aquinas says that the magnanimous one has a great power of animus and that magnanimity is said to be a great magnitude of animus. What then is animus? And I've not yet found a discussion of this in the literature. Yet animus identifies the matter of the virtue, and so it's crucial in uh, trying to understand what it is if we're going to understand Aquinas' definition. So first of all, what is animus? We often hear it said that the magnanimous one is the great-souled one, animus being translated as soul. But that isn't a very good translation because Aquinas is always quite specific and exact, whereas soul is very generic. All of the virtues have to do with the soul. There are only three virtues I can spot which Aquinas uses the term animus for. First of all, there is humility, which tempers and restrains the animus lest it tend immoderately to high things. Magnanimity, in contrast, strengthens the animus against despondency and urges it on to the pursuit of great things according to right reason. So they tend in opposite directions, but they both concern the animus, one of them restraining, one of them urging on. Similarly, Aquinas speaks of the brave person, the person of fortitude, as having an animus firmus, 
a strong animus in the face of the dangers of death. So animus is clearly being used very exactly and specifically with these three closely connected virtues. Humility restrains and tempers the animus so it doesn't reach too high. Fortitude strengthens the animus in the face of mortal danger. And magnanimity stretches out and urges the animus to reach for great things. In the old and usually very reasonable translation by the Dominican fathers of the English province in the question on magnanimity, the Latin animus is translated as mind. Yet that can't be a fitting translation either because magnanimity is a moral virtue. It doesn't have to do directly with the intellect. The later Dominican English translation, which is usually less literal, makes a much better suggestion, I think. Magnanimity, by definition, implies a certain aspiration of spirit to great things. So spirit is the translation of animus there, and aspiration the translation of extensio. Spirit is better than mind or soul because it conveys the dynamic force, the get-up-and-go of the virtue of magnanimity. What does Aquinas himself say about the meaning of animus? I think that he even was puzzled by it initially because in the Nicomachean Ethics, which is one of the main sources for his thinking on magnanimity, um, in the Latin translation, that is, the etymological analysis of magnanimitas stops short at explaining mania. It doesn't explain animus. So Aristotle doesn't give him much to go on. But the breakthrough comes when he notices that in the De Anima, his translation of Aristotle uses the word animus for the irascible power just as it uses desiderium to the concupiscible power. So this enables him to identify the animus in the definition of magnanimity with the capacity for irascible or spirited passions. Uh, the subject or bearer of the virtue of magnanimity is therefore the animus, that is, the irascible power. Uh, that the capacity for passions which have a difficult object, either a good to be attained or a, a difficult evil to be avoided or defeated. The spirited passions, the irascible passions. In the definition, he refers not just to animus, but animus at, ad. And that's significant because the irascible passions can be vectors towards or away from an object. Some move towards some good or evil, uh, a good that is difficult to attain or an evil it's difficult to defeat. And some fly from an evil it requires work to avoid. Since magnanimity concerns pursuit more than flight, the animus of magnanimity is an animus ad towards the movement of the irascible appetite towards some great and difficult good. The animus of the magnanimous one is more than a simple attraction. It's a salmon-like, supercharged desire directed towards the attainment of some demanding end. So let's play then with some alternative English translations. Um, one might be tempted to translate the Latin animus with the English animus. However, while the English word does mean a feeling or of intention motivating someone to action, it tends, as we know, to have a connotation of hostility lacking in the Latin term and absent from the virtue of magnanimity. At Campion Hall, we tend to find that theological breakthroughs happen as much in the community kitchen as in the seminars. So I consulted my community for some alternative uh, translations. Uh, one might say that the magnanimous one's animus ad is her oomph. Or perhaps it's her zip, her zest, her zing for great things. Um, it's her gumption, perhaps. Uh, the magnanimous one is someone with a bit of fire in the belly to get things done.
The suggestion I like the best comes from Father Joe Simmons, uh, namely the com- contemporary American word moxie. I hadn't come across. I don't know if you've come across this word. You have, yeah. So apparently, uh, the origins of the word go back to the time of Coca-Cola in the 19th century, when it was another soft drink, uh, which was advertised as building up your nerve and your verve. And so, if you lacked vitality. You could take this drink. And by the 1930s, it had become a slang word for someone's audacity, for their daring, for their courage, for their innovation, and so on. Uh, So you can admire someone uh, for their moxie when they get up again after being knocked down, when they persevere in a highly challenging task to the end, and when they show initiative to gain some unlikely goal. Magnanimity, one might say, is concerned with urging on one's moxie to great things. You may be thinking that if that's the best Campion Hall can do, it's not entirely clear that that's an improvement on the translation of the fathers of the English Dominican province. We can be a little bit more exact because... um, Aquinas names the magnanimous one's animus towards a difficult good as a particular kind of hope. Hope is the passion whose object is a future good that it is difficult to attain. And magnanimity, he says, is properly about hope for something arduous. And in an intriguing passage in On the Sentences, Aquinas briefly considers the possibility that magnanimity is the same as the theological virtue of hope. His conclusion is that magnanimity resembles humility, uh, resembles hope more than fortitude or longanimity or patience, but still it's not quite the same thing. For magnanimity is about the difficult to attain that lies in human affairs, not about the difficult that is God. So magnanimity is a kind of human or earthly hope, albeit one that participates somewhat in the theological, supernatural virtue of hope. This earthly hope, or magnanimity, however, is more than a passive expectation that things will turn out well. In another passage, this time in the summer, Aquinas says that magnanimity tends to the difficult, hoping for something that is of its power. And so it properly regards the operation of certain great things. So this, I think, explains why magnanimity is a particularly empowering virtue. Its agency derives from a hope grounded in a consciousness of one's own potential or power. When hope dies, agency dies. Magnanimity is a hope fueled inclination to do great things. Finally, magnanimity concerns not merely hope for Aquinas, but a particular way of hoping that he names confidence, fiducia. Fiducia. Confidence... um, Confidence for this reason, implies a certain strength of hope, robust faith, arising from some ob- observation, producing a strong conviction that one will obtain a good. Hence it is that confidence pertains to magnanimity. Um, it's from the word robur that we get the English robust. And in its root meaning, it refers to a hardwood, like an oak tree. So confidence is therefore a particularly robust hope, a hardwood hope. It's an oak-like sturdiness based upon the strong conviction that one can obtain or attain some good. So in summary then, magnanimity concerns a person's animus ad, their hope and their confidence in the power of their own agency. The mode of the virtue, that's the work it does with this matter, is to stretch it out, to urge it on, to impel it towards great and difficult things. In contrast to humility, whose mode is to temper and restrain. 
making sure that the animus ad does not get out of whack or reach too high. Magnanimity, one might say, is nothing other than a well-ordered moxie. Part three, the object of magnanimity, what's it targeted towards? So we specified the immediate matter of magnanimity as an animus or hope for great things, but what are the great and difficult things to which magnanimity is ordered? To answer this question is to specify the proper object, the target or immediate end of magnanimity. So, part A, virtue or honour. Cardinal Cajetan recognises that based on Aristotle's and Aquinas' texts, there are two candidates for magnanimity's objects. Great honours or great acts of virtue. And the first thing he says in his commentary on magnanimity is therefore this. In the first article of question 129, a doubt, a dubium, occurs. Whether magnanimity is about doing great works as its proper act and object, or whether it is about doing great works as a circumstance of rightly hoping for great honours. And the reason for the doubt is that Aristotle and St. Thomas say diverse things about magnanimity. So to paraphrase, is magnanimity defined as an inclination to doing great works of virtue? Or rightly hoping for great honours in return for great works of virtue? Is it primarily, uh, is the object primarily to be described in terms of virtue or to be terms uh, defined in terms of honour? And I think that perhaps without realising it, Kajitan is hitting upon a, a fault line in scholastic discussions of magnanimity. If you read Aristotle's account of magnanimity, at least if you read it, read it fairly hastily, it does seem to be primarily about honour, whereas Cicero had clearly made it a virtue that aims at the performance of great deeds. Aquinas's teacher, Albert the Great, had followed the Aristotelian viewpoint, whereas others had taken a more Ciceronian line. So the question is, where does Aquinas himself stand on this debate? The strong impression of the first two articles on magnanimity in the summer is that Aquinas is following his teacher Albert in offering an honour-based rather than a virtue-based account of magnanimity's object. Aquinas says that honour is the greatest among the exterior goods. Since magnanimity concerns what is great simply and absolutely, magnanimity must therefore be about honours, indeed about great honours. Again, we saw that hope is the passion that magnanimity concerns, its immediate matter. But hope for what exactly? He says, magnanimity is indeed immediately about the passion of hope, but immediately about honour as the object of hope. So once again, fairly clearly, the object of magnanimity itself seems to be honour. Aquinas's apparently positive attitude towards the appetite for honour opens him up to the charge of preferring Athens over Jerusalem, of pagan pride over Christian humility. Within the Christian tradition, hope for honours is generally seen as stemming from a vice, namely the capital vice of vainglory. As Aquinas himself puts it in an objection, the virtuous are not praised for desiring honours, but more for spurning them. However, honour for Aquinas is a certain reverence shown to someone in witness of his excellence. It has its value for Aquinas precisely because it bears witness to virtue. So while Aquinas doesn't advocate an indiscriminate desire for honour, he does think it's legitimate to desire honour in the right way, neither too much nor too little, but according to the mean. And reading backwards from the ways in which desire for honour can go wrong through the vice of ambition, 
the, there are three, at least three conditions for right desire for honour. First of all, that someone should desire honour only for the excellence they really possess. Respect for truth. Secondly, she should not desire honour for herself, but should refer to the honour to God, since any excellence a human possesses comes from God more than from herself. And thirdly, she should refer the honour to the profit of others, since any excellence in which she excels is a gift given so that she may profit others. That's the desire for honour. We find the clearest evidence for the alternative, more virtue-based account of the object of magnanimity in Aquinas's early on the sentences. Uh, the argument here is that the only objects of pursuit that are great without qualification are acts of virtue. Magnanimous one tends to that which is great simply, that is, perfect acts of virtue. He does not, however, tend principally into that which is great in some respect, such as our exterior goods, among which great honour holds first place. Honour in this early text is too cheap a goal for the magnanimous one, who is more concerned to be virtuous than to be honoured. So, the dilemma. What are the great things, the mania to which magnanimity is ordered? Great honours or great acts of virtue? Kajitan would call this a false dilemma. Magnanimity is, he claims, about both kinds of great things. When it is said that the magnanimous one is worthy of great things, this is understood of both great works and of great honours. And this both and interpretation is confirmed within the summer itself. Magnanimity is directed towards two things, towards honour as its matter, but to doing some great thing as its end. That may not be... You may be thinking at this point... You know, tell us something new. Aquinas is synthesizing <laughs> a both-and solution. But the, the problem now becomes quite acute. How exactly do we offer a unified theory of magnanimity? Because if it's pointing to two objects, we have a problem of a duality within a single habitus. So how to combine the virtue-based and honor-based accounts within a single account of the virtue of magnanimity? So, part B, the primacy of virtue, a place for honour. So, to begin, I think we could ask which of the two objects of magnanimity are primary. We've seen that for Aquinas, there's a moderate or well-ordered desire for honour. Even so, honour is too cheap a goal to define the virtue of greatness, as Kajitan argues. He echoes Aquinas's on the sentences. If the magnanimous one were not to tend directly to great things, which are not in the same sort of thing as the least goods, such as exterior goods, but are truly great goods, i.e. goods of the soul, he would not be truly magnanimous, as not tending towards goods that are truly and simply great. So the mania, the great things to which magnanimity are, is oriented principally and simply, have to be great acts of virtue. Honour simply is not a high enough object to define the virtue of magnanimity. Yet, Aquinas does insist that the magnanimous one is concerned with honour as well as virtue. And so Cajetan has to provide for it a place, albeit a secondary one, within the virtue. And I think that Cajetan adopts at least two approaches. The first approach is what I'll call the oblique or indirect approach. So he takes this statement, magnanimity strives to do things worthy of honour. And he suggests that it's not to be interpreted formally. It's clear that magnanimity does not have honour for its object. And if it were to tend formally into great acts as worthy of great honour, Already it would have great honour for its object, because it would tend to any such act under this description. But because it has for its formal object the great in any virtue, and the great in this sense is by its nature worthy of great honour, hence it is that magnanimity is about great things in both senses. 
In other words, it's about great acts of virtue as the primary and direct object, and it's about honour as the secondary and oblique object. What do I mean by oblique there? An object is best pursued obliquely when to pursue it directly would be self-defeating, and it can be attained only by pursuing something else with which it is directly connected. Honour for virtuous acts certainly seems to be an oblique object of this kind, because to do virtuous acts in order to win honour is self-defeating, because it's not virtuous to do things purely for honour. Yet by aiming at virtuous acts for their own sake, one makes oneself an appropriate recipient of rightly bestowed honour. So once again... Kajitan saying that the formal and direct object of magnanimity is great acts, but the oblique and secondary object is honour, since by aiming at great acts of virtue, we thereby indirectly um, make ourselves fitting recipients of honour. Now, the obliquity solution, while quite neat, only goes so far in offering the right kind of space for honour within the virtue of magnanimity as Kajitan recognises. Um, look again at what Aquinas is saying about the dual directedness of the virtue. He says, magnanimity points in the direction of two things, towards one as its intended end, which is some great work, which the magnanimous one focuses on according to his capacity, and magnanimity points in the direction of the second thing as its matter, that it uses rightly, namely honour. While the intended end of magnanimity is some great work, a great act of virtue, nevertheless it uses its matter, namely honour, to this end. Kajitan um, clarifies this twofold orientation by drawing an analogy with the virtue of fortitude, which I think is very helpful just as fortitude relates differently to the matter it modifies, that is fear of death, and to its proper act, since the brave person fears and dares moderately in order to attack strongly and stand firm, and not conversely. So it happens in a parallel way in magnanimity. Its proper act is to do great things, but because this act is impeded and encouraged by hope of great things such as honour and glory, so it is necessary to moderate the hope of honour. Therefore, magnanimity moderates the appetite for great honour in order to do great things in any virtue. Magnanimity, according to Kajitan, therefore relates to great honour as the matter it uses as a means, as a motivation, and to great acts as its proper act, formal object or end. There is a problem, however. I don't know if you've spotted it. Um, it's the problem of motivation. Because how does honour serve as a motivation for virtuous acts? Both Aquinas and Kajitan are very clear that to do virtuous acts purely out of a desire for honour is self-defeating, since those who do good deeds only for honour are not virtuous. So honour is presumably not the final cause or intended end of magnanimous virtue. But then it's unclear by what mechanism honour motivates virtue. What may put the problem in the form of a dilemma. Either honour is the intended end of virtuous acts, in which case it subverts virtuous motivation, or it's not, in which case it cannot motivate virtuous acts. Either way, honour seems to be the kind of thing that is useless when it comes to encouraging the magnanimous one's inclination to great acts of virtue. I'm going to try and lend, perhaps somewhat presumptively, Aquinas and Kajitana hand here. Um, <laughs> my own solution makes a distinction. Honour does foster the magnanimous one's aspiration to great acts of virtue, but only by motivating as an efficient rather than a final cause. 
And the key to understanding this is the way honour bestows self-knowledge. So Aristotle characterises the magnanimous man as the person who fills two conditions. First, that he thinks himself worthy of great things. And second, that he really is worthy of great things. Note, however, that this definition is not, this characterization is not a definition, since magnanimity is a moral or appetitive virtue, having to do with the animus for great things rather than being an intellectual virtue um, that concerns a cognitive act of self knowledge. Nevertheless, Aquinas would say, I think, that this self knowledge of one's dignity and worthiness is the ground or cause of magnanimity. Uh, we, we can see this by comparing magnanimity and the vice of pusillanimity and the virtue of humility. So first of all, take pusillanimity, smallness of soul. Ignorance of one's proper condition is the cause, Aquinas says, of pusillanimity. The pusillanimous one, because of this lack of self-knowledge of his own worthiness, withdraws himself from the great things of which he is worthy. In contrast, magnanimity, because of a knowledge of God-given gifts, is inclined to great acts. Magnanimity makes it that a human think himself worthy of great things according to the consideration of the gifts that he possesses from God. Just as if he has great strength of animus, magnanimity makes it that he tends to perfect works of virtue. So the cognitive self-knowledge of one's worthiness um, is, a, is a directive rule or guide of the desire of the animus to great things. Secondly, take humility. For Aquinas, humility is more than a virtue of correct self-knowledge. Humility, he says, lies essentially in the appetite, in the animus. Yet knowing one's limitations is a precondition of humility and serves as a kind of rule that directs and limits one's aspirations. So I would say, by parity of reasoning, the knowledge of one's worth, one's dignity, one's gifts from God, is not the essence of the virtue of magnanimity, but it is the ground. Honour, therefore, plays a crucial role in, stretching out, in the stretching out of the animus towards great acts of virtue, characteristic of the magnanimous one. Rightly bestowed honour is a respect based upon the truth. To reject such honour is to reject in some way the truth. And to receive it is to be helped towards the self-worth, which is the condition of magnanimous desire. As Aquinas says, from the goods that a human knows in himself by the witness of another's praise... He may be eager in those good things and progress to better. So I think Kajitan's solution, second solution, stands. The eye of the intention of magnanimity is trained on great acts of virtue. The principal and direct object of the stretching out of the animus is therefore great virtuous acts. Honour is only the oblique object. Moreover, magnanimity is characterised by a direct desire for honour, not as the end of its virtuous actions, but as a means. Honour serves as a means and a motivation for great virtuous acts, since it contributes to self-knowledge of one's gifts, and so encourages oneself in the moxious pursuit of the good. Magnanimity and dependence. So I think we now have the rudiments of a theory of magnanimity. This virtue is a quadem extensio animi ad mania, a reasonable stretching out of the animus to great things. The matter is the irascible appetite's pursuit of some difficult and great good, which Aquinas names a robust hope in the power of one's agency to attain such a good. The primary object or target is great works of virtue, its secondary and oblique object is honour, which encourages the animus in the pursuit of virtue. Finally, the mode of the virtue is quadem extensio, a certain stretching out of the animus towards. It's the turbo boost given to one's moxie for great things. 
does magnanimity thus conceived shed any light on the question of the Aquinas Seminar on Human Dependence? We sometimes tend to be suspicious of magnanimity because it seems to be working within a logic of desert or entitlement. The more virtuous I am, the more I'm entitled to receive reward and recognition. But in Aquinas' account of magnanimity, Aquinas is clearly working within a logic of gift rather than of desert, according to which what is received itself becomes a gift to others. That includes virtue as a gift from God that becomes transitive, a giving of something received to some, someone else. Um, Honour itself within this paradigm of gift is itself a gift-enabling gift. As Aquinas puts it, when someone excels in something given him, him by God, it's given to him so he can profit others. And so the testimony of his own excellence received from others should please someone. They should be delighted insofar as it prepares the way to profit others by this excellence. So it's not self-aggrandizement, it's all within the logic of gift. What does Aquinas do with Aristotle's assertion of the magnanimous man's self-sufficiency, which disturbed MacIntyre so much? Aquinas replies to this kind of objection as follows. For it's above a human being to entirely need nothing. For every human being needs, in the first place indeed, divine help. But secondary, even human help, because a human being is a naturally social animal, since he does not suffice of himself for life. Therefore, insofar as he requires others, thus it belongs to the magnanimous one to have confidence deriving from others, because this also belongs to the excellence of a human being, that he has others at hand who can help him. So magnanimity is not just a self-confidence for Aquinas. His confidence, as the Latin and English terms suggest, is a hope based on faith. Faith in oneself or in another. And uh, so for Aquinas, the magnanimous one's confidence is based upon a virtuous dependence on friends and especially on God. As relational and social beings, human needs, humans need the help of others and depend in the first place indeed upon the grace, the divine auxilium. What does this dependence on God's uh, grace looks like? I'm glad uh, Nicholas is here because we've been talking about magnanimity as a kind of vocational virtue, people responding to the call. And in Aquinas' question on pusillanimity, he refers to the stories of Moses and Jeremiah in Scripture. And he poses an objection. They seem somewhat pusillanimous because when they're called, they sort of shrink back. You know, I'm not worthy. You know, that's the normal response to a vocational call. And he says, well, they're, they're being humble, but then they're, they're not being pusillanimous because they don't obstinately persist in withdrawing. And I think that this gives us a sense of what magnanimity where magnanimity kicks in for Aquinas. It kicks in when we realise that, yes, we've been called to something great, but God's grace is going to help us. So there's a sort of vertiginous queasiness about a vocation. You know, I'm not worthy, I can't do this, I'm not good enough, I'm not virtuous enough. And the guarantee of God's help is what helps us to overcome that. So magnanimity for Aquinas is this kind of vocational virtue which depends in the first place indeed upon God's grace. And it happens paradoxically through humility. For by subjecting oneself more to God through humility, Aquinas says, the more one is exalted in God's sight. So far from being a virtue of pride-filled self-sufficiency as alleged by its critics, for Aquinas at least, magnanimity is a virtue of confidence humbly grounded, yes, in self, but also in others, and ultimately, and above all, in God. 
if you're still with me, I'll do a little Ignatian coda because uh, I realise that this is, there's been a lot so far. I think it's often the case that uh, saints have a signature virtue, a virtue which is especially manifest in them. And the, the early friends of Ignatius recognised his signature virtue as magnanimity. And it's perhaps significant that at his canonization and allowing for the hyperbole which often attends such occasions, Ignatius was described as having an animus greater than the world. When he describes the, the qualities that Father General ought to have in the constitutions of the Society of Jesus, he says the magnitude of animus is also necessary for him to initiate great things in the service of God and to persevere in them with constancy when it's fitting, not letting his animus give up, get deflated, because of contradictions even from the great and powerful. And again, his friends saw in this portrait of Father General an unconscious and unintentional portrait of Ignatius himself. Um, and I think when we look at Ignatius's biography, we see why they singled out magnanimity. Uh, he starts off as a young man, as a sort of kid with a lot of moxie, but not much humility or wisdom. <laughs> so it's a disordered moxie. He begins the first event in the Constitution. So he, the first sentence, he admits to vainglory at this age, in, in his 20s. And the first event is Ignatius defending the castle at Pamplona, uh, despite immense risk to himself and all of everyone else on his side. And it could have been catastrophic. Fortunately, it was ended when a cannonball hits Ignatius's leg. So a disordered moxie, driven by ambition and vainglory. After his conversion, he reads the lives of the saints and the life of Christ. And so his his animus gets is still towards great things, but now it's apparently holy things. And he talks about Francis and Dominic and thinking, well, they did these great penances. I'll, I'll do one better. I'll go even further. So again, there's not much humility. He's still, um, it's still disordered, even though it's, hum, you know, it's holy and pious things that he's aiming for. And he almost comes a cropper because of this animated desire to be more holy than everybody else. He, he even uh, risks suicide at one point. Through God's grace and through learning a bit about discernment and discretion, he, he realises that, that God isn't asking him to pray seven hours a day and do all these penances and so on. His next thing is he wants to go to Jerusalem. Why does he a very dangerous thing in those days? And uh, he risks his own life and why does he want to go to Jerusalem to convert the infidel? And that doesn't work out either because the Franciscans um, expel him from Jerusalem under pain of mortal sin. <laughs> but these great dreams he keeps on dreaming and they die very hard in Ignatius. And by the end of his life, um, he's spending the last years of his life writing letters in a room in Rome governing the incipient society of Jesus. So you can see a process of purification of his animus, his, his great animus, that starts off vainglorious and ambitious, first about worldly things, then about holy things, and only gradually becomes less and less about Ignatius and more and more about God and serving others. So he ends with a magnanimous uh, desire for God's greater service, not for the glory of Ignatius. One final, there are various different sources we can look at for magnanimity and Ignatius, but I think one of the most precious is a, a letter, a famous letter to Teresa Regidel, who's a woman religious, who's become somewhat discouraged in the spiritual life. It's a famous letter because it concerns discernment of spirits uh, and so it complements the rules for discernment in the spiritual exercises. So, uh, Teresa is a good religious who's become despondent. Um, 
So what Ignatius does is he explains to her that in the beginning of the Christian life, the devil uses the tactic of tempting people to riches and honour and glory. But that doesn't work for basically good Christians. They see through those kind of empty promises. So at that point, when people are making progress in the spiritual life, the evil one changes his tack to tempt them with false humility. And he's picked up a sort of scent of false humility in her letter. For you say you are a poor religious. Listen to the language. I'm a poor religious. I'm not very good. I'm not... And it seems to me I want to serve Christ our Lord. You do not even dare to say I want to serve Christ our Lord, or the Lord gives me desires of serving him. Rather you say, it seems to me I want to. So she's too self-effacing. She's sort of, um, she's eclipsing the great gift of desiring to serve Christ that the Lord has given her. And so what is the strategy that Ignatius recommends is basically to have thoughts of magnanimity to, to, to counteract the thoughts of pusillanimity coming from the evil spirit. If you look properly, you will clearly understand that these desires of serving Christ our Lord are not from you, but given by the Lord. And you will speak like this. The Lord gives me increased desires of serving him, i.e. the very same Lord himself. You are praising him because you are making his gift known. You are exulting in him, not in yourself, since you are not attributing that grace to yourself. So here discernment of spirits operates by distinguishing counterfeit from true humility and countering the spirit of pusillanimity with the thoughts of magnanimity of confidence in the empowering gifts to receive from God. And in the spiritual exercises themselves, Ignatius insists that in those making progress in the Lord, going from good to better, it's characteristic of the evil spirit to disturb and put up obstacles, but proper to the good spirit to give animus and strength. So what we see in this discernment is that magnanimity once again can thrive within a paradigm of gift. To quote the spiritual exercises, totum esse donum et gratium dei, all is a gift and grace of God. It's not a sin against humility to recognise one's desires to serve Christ, since they stem from God. The same God who gives the desire will also, Ignatius hopes, give the grace to perform the acknowledgement of dependence on God's gift does not deflate, but rather stretches out and urges on the animus to the greater service of God and others, as a gift received becomes a gift given. Thank you.